I'm Lauren Berry from Odyssey, and this is the On Deadline podcast, where we bring you a deeper look at top stories out of our radio newsrooms across the country. Today, On Deadline is looking at the recent changes to Social Security and how the economy overall is faring amidst the constant fear of a recession. About the recession, the one we've all been bracing for, despite experts predicting it was months away for the majority of last year, it has yet to materialize. However, even with inflation remaining sky high and the Federal Reserve continuing to boost interest rates, Social Security recipients may feel like they're getting their own little recession. That's because they'll see next year's cost of living increase cut in half from 2023. In 2023, the increase to Social Security payments shot up by 8.7%. That was to help curb the worsening economy. But in 2024, payments will only increase by 3.2%. Social Security impacts nearly 71 million Americans. And many of them are wondering how they'll keep up with the consistently higher prices for necessities like rent and food. Gas costs nearly $7 a gallon in California right now. That's according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Prices for chicken are 23% higher in 2023 than they were back in 2020. Eggs went from about $1.50 a dozen in January of 2020 to nearly $5 this January. And prices for ground beef are up more than 20% since 2020. So think about that the next time someone complains that they're on a fixed income. Other changes in Social Security include a reduction in payments for those who start to claim their benefits at 62 and beneficiaries potentially being taxed on up to 85% of their benefit income. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger joined Odyssey in Dallas to discuss what the recent changes to Social Security mean for Americans. Last year, just remind us, we had an enormous jump, 8.7% last year? Yes, it was interesting because the last two years were really aberrations. You know, if you look at the two decades before COVID, when you got these annual increases from the Social Security Administration, they kind of matched inflation, which was pretty low. So the average annual COLA was about 2.6%. Then, of course, with COVID, we had this inflationary spike. And in 2022, the COLA was 5.9%. Then for this year, it was 8.7%. And, you know, it's not like there's a guesswork in this. It really is about the consumer price index, what's actually happened to the numbers. The government looks at the third quarter of the current year, then goes back to the third quarter of the prior year and says, okay, how are we doing with prices? And then they apply that for the following year. So the Social Security cost of living adjustment for 2024 will be 3.2%. That's because the inflation rate has moderated. Not as much of a jump, maybe as some would want, especially those that rely on Social Security. But it does make sense. I I guess the, the first thing we're seeing is that, yes, inflation has moderated a bit. That's the thing. It's it's not like something you can really fight. That said, you know, there are some people who look at this and they say, gosh, you know, when you look at what really impacts seniors, what you find is that maybe we should have a different way of measuring. In other words, there's something called the CPIW. That's one of the consumer price index subcategories. And the government says, hey, this is a more specialized index. But critics say there's a lower weight on medical care and housing in this one index. And I guess that maybe there was some thought years ago that lower weight made sense because maybe seniors had Medicare 
or maybe seniors own their homes. But that may not be the case. And so there is a concern that seniors are not keeping up with inflation because of the measure. When we look forward here, you know, whether we are in retirement age or we're still 20 years out, what kind of lessons can we take from, you know, the the cost of living adjustment, which does go up and down? We really don't know what it's going to be like when we do get to retirement age. This is the critical question, right? Because if it's so uncertain, how can I plan? And I think the way to think about it is to consider very conservative approaches to retirement. What do I mean? Maybe five years ago, you were looking at retirement and you might have said, inflation's really low, the markets are doing well, I'll just project that for three decades in the future. Well, that's a big assumption. So maybe the better way to do this is use a higher rate of inflation. So even if 2% is what you had been experienced, maybe it's 2.5%. Maybe right now we would use 3% going forward. And also, don't assume that markets will kind of make up the difference. So a lot of people were using 9% return, 8% return for their investments, maybe use 5 or 6%. What you might find is something that's going to be very unpopular for me today. And that is, you might have to wait a few more years before you retire so that you can have a little bit more control over your future. The thing is about waiting, it does do a couple of things. One, you don't eat into your nest egg, it has more time to grow, but it also allows you to wait to claim your Social Security benefit at least until your full retirement age, which is 66 or 67. But if you can wait till age 70, you get all of these credits for waiting, and that can boost your retirement savings significantly and also means the amount of COLA that you get is going to be bigger because the base is bigger. So you will likely be a happier retiree assuming more conservative assumptions. Americans who collect Social Security aren't the only ones feeling the brunt of an unsettled economy right now. A recent report from real estate data provider ATTOM showed that 99% of homes in the United States are currently unaffordable for the average American who makes $71,000 a year. Throw in mortgage rates, which remain at about 7%, and Americans, particularly younger generations, are being forced to rent instead of buy or get roommates, or stay with their parents into their 30s to save up the astronomical amount of a down payment. And no, it has nothing to do with avocado toast. But the days of a young mom and dad and 2.5 kids settling into a soaring McMansion may be moving from the realm of reality into the world of reality TV. To discuss the recent trends in housing, real estate broker Lisa Simonson joined Odyssey in Los Angeles. So smaller, I guess it makes sense, mortgage prices being what they are and home prices being what they are, that homes apparently are getting new ones anyway, are getting smaller? Absolutely. We're looking at uh, what someone would pay before for a 2,000 square foot home. Now they're going to get about 1,500 square feet just because of the interest rates rising. So size does matter right now, and you're definitely going to see a trend of smaller homes. You know, I visited uh, New York a few times, and, you know, the jokes there about how small some of the apartments are. Apartments get smaller and smaller as things get more expensive. I also visited uh, overseas, and in England, there were many very nice homes, but they were on the smaller side than when I was used to here in sunny Southern California. So is that the trend? That's the future that we're headed to? 
Absolutely, and that is the future we're heading to. And don't forget, size does matter, but it's also efficiency of the floor plan and the layout. So oftentimes you can have wasted space. So I think you're going to see, even though it's smaller, there's, you're still going to have you know great layout. And as I said, just more efficient space and not seeing wasted space. So it's not, it's definitely not a negative. But if homes are getting smaller, if they continue to get smaller, at what point does it not make a difference whether you buy a home or an apartment? Well, that's a good question, but also obviously, depending on where you live, there are, you know, obviously in, you know, New York, in the centers of the cities, there's apartments, but a lot of areas, there are homes, there aren't apartments. So again, I think it comes down to with interest rates going up that you're going to just see, it's not a negative that you're just going to see smaller, more efficient spaces, whether it be an apartment or a home. But I'm wondering if homes get smaller, uh, if we don't end up with what the Pentagon often likes to diplomatically call collateral damage. If you have fewer rooms, you have fewer need for as much furniture, you know what I mean? And, and across the board, a lot of people's livelihoods depend on it. You don't need as much paint or wallpaper. Everything is reduced. That has to have a long-range, profound effect on the economy, I would think. Um, not necessarily. Again, just because you have less space does not mean, you know, it, it, we're not talking about dramatically less space. Like you're talking about those very tiny sort of dollhouses. That's not what we're talking, you know, what I'm talking about when I'm looking at some of the numbers of a 2,000 square foot house that now is 1,500 square feet. That's not that dramatic. So it's a little bit over 20%. So I think, again, going back to if it's a more efficient floor plan and you do some decluttering, you're not now living in something which is so much, you know, is dramatically smaller. With the holidays right around the corner, Americans are also having to face the tough decision of how to spend their money on presents or travel to visit the friends and family that they were going to buy those presents for. A CNBC morning consult survey from September found that not only did 92% of adults reduce their spending over the summer months, but 76% said they plan on cutting back how much they'll spend on non-essential items over the holiday season. But like with many economic predictors right now, that's all over the place. Because the survey comes as forecasters still predict a heavy shopping season. For example, commerce forecaster eMarketer predicts that overall retail spending will increase 4.5% this year, seeing Americans spend more than $1.3 trillion this holiday season. As for travel, NerdWallet reports that the cost of travel in September 2023 was 10% higher than it was before the pandemic. This includes the cost of food, car rentals, hotel stays, and airfare. Ted Rossman from Bankrate joined Odyssey to give us a preview of what we can expect from the holiday travel season. Sounds like people are changing their holiday plans. What'd you find? Yeah, it's interesting because on one hand, we have more people projected to travel, 48% of Americans this holiday season versus 43% last year. But as you said, people are making changes, 77% modifying plans due to inflation. So they're traveling, but they're cutting some corners to save money. Namely, they're driving instead of flying. That was actually the top modification. 
Others are maybe taking fewer trips or picking cheaper accommodations or cheaper destinations. People are prioritizing travel, but they're also adapting. It seems different age groups, though, had varying concerns about their holiday plans. Can you talk more about, you know, what maybe a Gen Zer worries about versus a baby boomer? The concerns are definitely highest among young adults and also people with lower incomes. And there is actually a lot of overlap between those groups. A lot of young adults have lower incomes just because they're starting out and they're also worried about things like high rents, high childcare costs, the resumption of student loan payments. I think that travel costs actually fall heaviest on young adults around the holidays too, because it's so often the parents or grandparents that host, and then it's the young adults who travel to them often with their own kids in tow. So I think these are all reasons why we see young adults and people with lower incomes feeling more stressed about holiday travel costs. And then I noticed people, again, using credit cards for their holiday expenses like travel. How might that impact finances after the holidays when you consider shopping uh, being done on credit cards and now travel on credit cards as well? Credit cards are projected to be the most common payment method for both holiday travel and holiday shopping this year. The big fork in the road is whether or not you carry a balance because it is roughly half and half. And if you're among those who are paying in full, well then that's great. You get rewards and buyer protections and life is good. The other half, more or less, is what we worry about. People that are paying an average interest rate exceeding 20%, that's the highest we've ever seen. I know it's easier said than done to pay off credit card debt, but I do think it's especially important to be mindful of these holiday costs. Maybe there are some other things you can do to save money rather than go into credit card debt. And maybe you have some rewards points or miles that you could cash in, or maybe you could make some adjustments to your trip so that hopefully you can still go and see family, but not have long-term credit card debt that can become a persistent problem. Social security, airfare, mortgage rates, they're just some of the economic stressors Americans are currently facing. To deal with the added cost of everyday essentials, Americans have also begun racking up credit card debt. According to a bank rate survey from August, 72% of American households with an annual income of $100,000 or more currently have credit card debt and have carried it for more than a year. But it's not just high earners, as 40% of college students are struggling with credit card debt, and nearly 30% said their credit card debt exceeded $2,000. From credit cards to housing, if you had to pick one word to define today's economy, it would be this one. Uncertain. And that applies if you're a Gen Zer striking out on your own for the first time, or trying to, or a senior citizen banking on Social Security. When will we get back on more predictable, solid footing? Like it or not, that's uncertain too. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. I'm Lauren Berry, and I want to say thanks for listening to On Deadline, Odyssey serving of a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcasts to stay informed. 